they didn't go to, you know, Luciano right away. The Navy went to the district attorney's office, told them what they needed, and they came up with, you know, a few names that might be able to help. The first one, you know, that really ended up being a lot of help was this um, mid-level gangster named Sox Lanza. Um, and Sox is his uh, nickname because he socked everybody. I mean, he's like a big 275-pound man. You know, he's got these enormous hands, you know, and he'll punch you with brass knuckles. Um, he was also the czar of the Fulton Fish Market. Well, hey, all you wiretappers out there, it's good to be back here in the studio. Uh, you know, I, we're in the middle of winter right now here in Kansas City. It might be warm by the time I get this out, or at least warmer than it is right now. But this is about halfway between Christmas and New Year's. And anybody, anybody that lives back east, I know you guys have hit it. They've, you've got it. It's been horrid back there. Really cold here, but not so much snow. Anyhow, today... I, I think it's a treat for me. I don't know about you guys. I hope you find it's a treat, but it's a real treat for me. Ever since I was started into this mob stuff, I read my first mob book when I was probably in my teens, maybe early 20s. I can't remember. And there's this story about Lucky Luciano and World War II and some naval officers. And, and I maybe in, is in a movie or something a little bit about it, but I've never known the details on that. And it's it's kind of like a myth about Lucky Luciano. And, you know, I like to get below where the myth it starts and, and what really gets that myth going and, and, and what really happened in World War II. Because you guys, I don't know how old you are. A lot of you are, are closer to my age. A lot of you are post-war baby boomers. And and I was just remarking to my wife, I I, I really long for the time when everybody was together. And World War II... And those next few years afterwards, we were like together as a country. And uh, I don't know, we, we seem like we've lost that. Anyhow, I'm, uh, my guest is sitting here, you know, and I haven't even introduced him. It's Matthew Black. Matthew, welcome. Thank you so much. <laughs> nice to see you. And, and so the book is Operation Underworld, how the mafia and U.S. government teamed up to win World War II. That's a, it's a great title. And, and I guess Operation Underworld was the name of the operation that the government started into right that's right yeah mm -hmm. well matthew uh, uh how did you get into this I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about my background and maybe it'll kind of make sense of how i arrived you know at okay. this uh this story i mean you know I've, I've, I've loved history you know since i was a child and and uh mostly got that from my father and i've, I've loved writing for just as long um and uh, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, and uh, I went to college at the University of Washington, where I studied history. Um, I got a little sidetracked, and for about a decade, um, I was working at Bank of America, ended up being a bank manager, not not a profession you hear for a lot of writers. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, no offense to any bankers out there, just just wasn't for me, and was kind of soul-crushing. So, um, yeah, I can imagine that. <laughs> anyway. Right. Right. Um, but then, uh, you know, I left the industry for my, my first writing gig and, um, it, it did not go well. And, uh, it, in fact, it was an unmitigated disaster. Um, <laughs> I was, I was hired, uh, to write a memoir, uh, about this man. And, um, eventually I learned that he, he was running a Ponzi scheme. Um, mm -hmm. and I had actually invested with him too, um, and so he ended up getting busted by the FBI and, um, you know, the, the notes for my, for that book suddenly, you know, came into question if they were going to use it as evidence, but, uh, oh, no. 
Yeah, I know, right. That's a heck of, that's a, heck of a story in itself. That's I know, story. right? Yeah. You maybe, go back and put that book together? <laughs> I know, yeah. Maybe maybe one day I will tell that story, you know. Um, but um, so that, that didn't go too well and, you know, kind of, again, doing some soul searching. But then I got an opportunity to write a book uh, for the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Um, so my my first book was a, a biography about a former president of theirs, and uh, his name was Dave Beck. Uh, you guys probably haven't heard of him, but uh, he was the president of the Teamsters right before Jimmy Hoffa took office, who you probably have heard of. Yeah, um, oh yeah. I, I have some vague memory of of articles or, or Life magazine articles or something, oh, yeah. or Time magazine about Dave Beck. That's right. President or uh, of the Teamsters Union. He was a big deal in the 50s <laughs> until Hoffa took over. And and he was kind of he was kind of a quasi criminal. He wasn't quite like Hoffa, but he, he bordered on being a criminal. Correct, Gary. Yeah, yeah. No, that that's great that you know that. Not not a lot of folks know a lot about that. Yeah. I mean, he was he was president of the Teamsters from 52 to 57. So it's it's a ways back. And um uh, but you know, it just he—he. He, it's funny because you know he went to jail. Yeah, exactly. He wasn't like a criminal mastermind. He kind of got caught up in some bad business. But uh, you know, every everybody I write about either goes to prison or has been in prison. So you know, Operation Underworld is is just perfect for that. Yeah. So so now, Matt Matthew, this book about Dave Beck for the real hardcore history true crime enthusiast. What's the name of that book? And is it available like on uh, Amazon? Well, it's, it's called Dave Beck, a, a Teamster's Life. If you want to find me on, on LinkedIn or through my website, you know, I'd be happy to mail you a copy. But, um, you know, what, what it is, the uh, the Teamsters um, did a history project, you know, for oh, their, for their you know, 1.2 million members and, you know, published some books about their history. And uh, that was one of them. Okay, I, I got it. And your website, I believe, is uh, Black Ink something. Remind me of the website. Oh yeah, no, that's a portfolio one. But for the book, um, operationunderworldbook.com. Oh, okay. All right. Try that one out. <clears throat> okay, cool. And, and so let's uh let's start talking about Operation Underworld, I think. Uh, again, okay. you have this history of wanting to do true crime. It sounds mm -hmm. like it's exciting to you. It's exciting to me, it's exciting to a lot of people. And sure. and, and then it's it's part and parcel, just like the Teamsters. And they're they're part of our our, our uh, psyche in the United States, and the mafia is part of our psyche in the United States. I was just listening to a podcast about why do we like the mafia so much, and and, mm. and it's so uh, integrated with all of society, and you know, in politics and and uh, business and in our our. Uh, entertainment in the United States and, and we yeah. love the mob in, in this country. So uh, how did you pick Operation Underworld? And I know you had to, uh, you had to do, you had to go in a lot of military records as well as court records and things too, I would think. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, I've told you kind of connection to labor and, and crime, but, you know, for military that, you know, I, when I was a kid, my love of history, you know, I really wanted to go, uh, it's one of the academies, you know, West Point yeah. or Annapolis, um, uh, maybe even the Air Force Academy. But a uh, couple of things dissuaded me. Number one, they have very good technical 
degrees there, you know, and I'm <laughs> not much, uh, you know, into the technical. I, I, I would have been more into the humanities, uh, you know, or, you know, history. Not an engineer. <laughs> no, no, not, not really. You don't want me doing that. Um, and then, uh, you know, I was, it kind of grew up in a, in a pretty disciplined household. So, you know, the, the idea of the people telling me what to do <laughs> for the next few years didn't, didn't sound too appealing, but, um, Actually, the but the how lucky Luciano and Operation Underworld came to be is is you know I mean I've always had a you know fascination with him um, you know anybody who's interested in mafia or or true crime you know would would find Luciano to be a particularly amazing character to study yeah. um, and you know there's a reason that Time Magazine listed him as one of the most one of the 100 most influential people of the 20th century wow and uh, that's because he organized crime when you hear about organized crime. He's the one who organized it. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. There's the famous story, of course, how he killed off the mustache <laughs> Pete's almost kind of replayed in The Godfather in, in a you know a more popular format, but he killed off all the Godfather the mustache Pete's and, and organized crime with the well, yeah, with yeah. Jewish friends. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you know, the in, in this book, I'll you know, I go through, you know, his background so amazing. I'll, you know, I tell all those stories and yeah. um you know, you'll you'll see a bunch are like, wait, wasn't that in The Godfather? It's like, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. This was the true story, right. you know, that that led to that scene in The Godfather. So um I I was uh, a few years back, I was working at a uh an online history magazine, and it was kind of my job just to um, you know, research the greatest stories in history and then try to write them up. Uh and so I wrote a few different ones on uh Luciano. Um, and then one of them that I wrote, of course, was about Operation Underworld. Um, when the pandemic hit, uh, the publisher that I worked for was one of the companies that went belly up. Mm -hmm. And so I lost my job and, um, you know, I was on uh, government assistance there for a little while, you know, like so many people. Yeah. And again, trying to figure out what, what to do, you know, how I can get this writing thing going. And then, um, uh, I got a message out of the blue on LinkedIn from an agent who read uh, the Operation Underworld story that I had published like, you know, four years prior. Uh, you know, she's she's fine. It's finally making it to her desk reading it. You know, she's like, hey, do you want to, you know, I represent authors. Do you want to write a book about this? And, um, you know, I've only been dreaming about an opportunity like that my really? entire life. So. <laughs> How many people out um, you know, there who think they can write are waiting for that phone call and never got it. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Believe me, there was, there's a lot of moments in my life where I was wondering if that opportunity was ever going to come. So I, I definitely consider myself very lucky that it did. Um, and then when it did, you know, you just, you got to write the hell out of it. So, <laughs> you know, um, a couple of years later, here we are. It's, uh, it's actually Gary, this is a special day because this is the official, um, uh, book release day. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I'll make so sure I get getting, something getting, out on Facebook today. I'll get some oh, great. out on yeah. Facebook today. Getting a lot of messages from family and friends and stuff. Yeah. Uh, it's okay. finally arriving. <laughs> so yeah. so let's go to World War II. A lot of people okay. know the story. We don't need to rehash the story. You're, you're telling it. I noticed in the book as I thumbed through it, you're kind of retelling that story of the uh, um, the night of the Sicilian Vespers, which is a myth in itself, but I, mm -hmm. I deal with that in another show. But sure. the, the night, like Luciano, took over in a way. It, it, but now we're getting to World War II. He's in, in the penitentiary up in Danamora, way, way north in, in New York, upstate New York, I believe. 
That's right. And World War II has started, and there's some problems on the docks, I believe, some sabotage and some things going on at the military. Uh, one thing you wrote about was the uh, a burning of a huge big ship called the Normandy. Uh, That's right. I don't, I don't know. That wasn't exactly the genesis of Operation Underworld, but that certainly had got the military's attention. Tell us about the sh- that ship in the Normandy. I thought that was kind of interesting that we had back. Yeah, so, for sure, for sure. Yeah, and um, that's that's where the the book starts, where the where the prologue goes through that that scene. Um, and you know, it, I think it's important to start there for one because it kind of put the Navy in a panic, and I'll you know get to that in a second, but. Also, it was extremely public. So the, the Normandy was this um, uh, this cruise liner that was being refitted to be a troop transport. And Normandy was the second largest ship in the world. You know, it was it was a thousand feet from bow to stern. And on February 9th in the morning, uh, 1942, so, you know, barely two months into the war, you know, images of burning ships at Pearl Harbor still fresh in people's minds. A fire starts on the ship. Within a few minutes, it just, it kind of consumes the entire top deck. And, you know, a ship that large, a fire that big, people are going to notice, you know, tens of thousands, you know, hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers, you know, witness this behemoth just getting consumed by fire. Fire department started fighting it and, um, you know, they successfully extinguished the blaze, but they, um, they hurled so much water on board that the ship ended up capsizing. So, uh, the ship, the ship was lost. At the time, there was this big fear that there were spies and saboteurs, uh, you know, working for the German or Italian governments, uh, that were on the waterfront. And it was suspected that this ship had been indeed been sabotaged, um, that the enemy had got on board somehow, caused a fire, and taken it out. I mean, it was one of the most important ships in the Atlantic fleet. It could carry 15,000 troops across wow. the ocean. You know, it's, it's pretty amazing. And so even prior to the event, there had been other spy rings in New York City that had been um, identified, and there had been um, uh, ones who had been arrested and tried. They knew there were more out there. But it's all part of the Battle of the Atlantic, you know, taking place um, – just just outside the really on our home shores in our home waters um as soon as we entered the war the germans sent uh, squadrons of, of uh, u-boats to our shores and they really started wreaking havoc on our shipping to the point where we were losing ships at about one or two a day i mean it was just just awful amount of uh, supplies and men being lost we didn't have a fleet to combat them and the big fear is that there's these spies within New York City who are communicating to the German U-boat captains yes. about ship movements, ship routes, you know, um, uh, uh, embarkations, you know, uh, where they're coming from. And if they know that knowledge, then they know where to wait. And since they were having so much success, it was just assumed that somebody in New York City, some people in New York City were communicating with the enemy. Yeah, it wouldn't be uh, hard to do. Just hang around the docks and you see a big ship leaving and you've got a, some kind of a radio. Right, uh, right, exactly. So the ship's leaving at this time and, and I right. watched them as they went out, you know, their last known location and those U-boats were right off the coast. So, just Right, and, I, and I, I think there was actually, a, you know, just, just a guy in a, a tower off of, uh, you know, what, one, of the, one of the coasts who just would watch the ship. You know, he eventually got busted, <laughs> you know. Um, but of course, you know, like you said, it would be just as easy to watch. And then, um, 
you know, the, the actual longshoremen, you know, the people in the, the waterfront who are loading the cargo, very few of them are naturalized American citizens, you know, yeah. most of them are immigrants, um, a lot of Italians, especially. Um, and, you know, Roosevelt had even declared that they were potential enemies, you know, which was not too smart. <laughs> you know, they're, yeah. they're loading up the majority of our war materials. You know, we really need them. Um, so we definitely want them on our side. Uh, um, so the Navy basically identified that vulnerability. Anybody could just be watching or if they didn't know the backgrounds of the people who were loading cargo onto the ships, perhaps they could plant a bomb. They had been to the Port of New York and various places, various piers prior to the Normandy fire, um, but they didn't have any success, uh, you know, talking to anybody. Nobody would talk to them. And um, that was kind of, that was as a result of the old padrone system, you know, from Italy where, you know, you just, you did not talk to authorities. You especially did not talk to authorities about your boss. Yeah. Uh, you know, that could literally mean your life. Um, so they would just, you know, pretend like they didn't speak English. So they had no success. But once the Normandy, you know, fire happened, they're like, okay, we, we have to get, we have to infiltrate the harbor. You know, there's just, we cannot guarantee that this won't happen again if we don't get our men inside. And so that's where um, Commander Haffenden comes in and the Navy, he's the other main character in the book. Uh, and his section uh, are filled with uh, uh investigators he's a counterintelligence uh commander and uh his section is filled with all these private investigators former police officers fbi agents and men from the district attorney's office um as well and so you know the people who worked at the district attorney's office though knew full well who was in charge at the waterfront you know on the waterfront that was that was the mafia of course and and not necessarily just italian uh criminal gangs, you know, like, you know, the, the five families that you hear yeah. about, but there were also Irish gangs, you know, Jewish gangs, and they, they controlled various peers. And uh, they knew that the only way they were going to make inroads was if they could get the cooperation of some of these gangsters who were, you know, big time on the waterfront there. Interesting. So I guess yeah. uh, somebody would have been easy to know that who was the main gangster in New York city at the time would be lucky Luciano. I mean, he's, Got that right. cool name anyhow, but you know, you gotta, uh, I can see it from a law enforcement standpoint, you gotta find that guy who will then give you some credibility and then speak to other people with credibility and, and open that up to, to, to law enforcement as you will. I mean, it's the same problem law enforcement has investigating in any, you know, whether it be your, uh, a cop going into an all black neighborhood or all Hispanic or whatever, investigating something, you've got to develop sources within the neighborhood, not just criminal sources, but, you know, corner store people and, and people that work there all the time to know who's who and what's what. So. Sound like that's what he did. And Luciano then would it could introduce him to people. Is that what happened? Yeah. And you know, actually, you know, the story, I mean, you, you're right on about that. Yeah, def definitely. And um, it, it just, you know, it, it kind of compliment, complicated things that Luciano was in prison, <laughs> you know. And I know Dan Amora is in New York, but it's far from New York City. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like on the Canadian border there. They didn't go to, you know, Luciano right away. The Navy went to the district attorney's office, told them what they needed, and they came up with, you know, a few names that might be able to help. The first one, you know, that really ended up being a lot of help was this um, mid-level gangster named Sox Lanza. 
Um, and Socks is his uh, nickname because he socked everybody. I mean, he's like a big 275-pound man. You know, he's got these enormous hands, you know, and he'll punch you with brass knuckles. Um, he was also the czar of the Fulton Fish Market. Um, and, uh, that doesn't, it doesn't exist anymore, but it was in the lower end of Manhattan or it's actually moved. I shouldn't say it doesn't exist. Uh, but is it the lower end of Manhattan right on the waterfront there and, um, a unique, uh, situation because there's all kinds of fishing boats going in and out like every, you know, every single day, it's the biggest fish market in the world. Um, and so, uh, when, <clears throat> When they go down there, or when they first approach the mafia, there's obviously a question of will these men be loyal, you know, to the United States? Will they help them out? Um, will they help us out? And, you know, they were surprised to learn that even the district attorneys were like, oh, yes, these men love their country. You know, they, they are patriots. They are not loyal to Benito Mussolini in Italy, you know, who, you know, uh, yeah. they didn't know, but he was waging a war against the mafia. Um, so, you know, they, they had no interest in helping him. Um, but there was also a question, you know, one of the reasons they went to the mafia, they were wondering if the mafia was helping uh, the enemy. Um, and uh, the, the big fear was that they were, if you go back to prohibition days, the mafia used to run a mission. Uh, you know, you've probably heard of rum runners, yeah. you know, yeah. before. Yeah. So the mission they used to, uh, you know, carry out was that they take a fast boat to the three mile boundary, you know, of international waters and rendezvous with a ship from Europe and take on, you know, whiskey, scotch, you know, whatever booze. And then they'd race back, you know, into the, you know, to the mainland uh, with, you know, trying uh, to not be detected. So, you know, the Navy knew they had run those missions before and the fear was like, well, they could do it again, you know, for money. They could be rendezvousing with German U-boats out at sea and giving them fresh supplies. So they had to figure out, A, are they doing that? And then B, are they willing to help us? And then C, you know, how can they help us? Um, and so once they get Sox lands involved, it's really cool because since he was at Fulton Fish Market and he has access to all these fisher uh, fishing boat captains, they talked to them and kind of turned the fishing fleet on the East Coast from Long Island all the way down, you know, to New York City into kind of our first line of defense against mm -hmm. German U-boats. Um, these guys start looking out for U-boats. They start reporting back to the Navy if they see anything suspicious, mm -hmm. um, you know, and there's a few occasions, you know, where there's a U-boat surfacing in an area and they're like, what is that U-boat doing there? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, these are these are things that they have to answer. So, um once, once, you know, Lanza gets involved, they get them, they get several other ports involved. There's other areas that the mafia's influence, you know, extends to. But the problem is, is that Lanza, he, he can't get cooperation from the Irish gangs. He can't really get cooperation from the other Italian families, criminal families in New York as well, because he's just too low level to have any influence on these people. And so... That's that's when Luciano ends up coming into the picture. Oh. Yeah, and the, the quote there is that they needed somebody who could snap the whip on the entire underworld. Yeah. Um, and one thing about Luciano, you know, if you know about his rise um, and especially how he came to power, one of the unique things about him is that he was not exclusive in who he dealt with uh, in terms of business. And so while his predecessors, the mustache Pete's that you had mentioned, mm -hmm. you know, would only do business with Italians, you know, Luciano's best friend was Meyer Lansky, you know, a Jewish gangster. 
um, you know, he he was doing deals with Irish, you know, um, Irish gangs as well. And his his approach was more to keep the peace. Like there was plenty of money to go around. Why do we need to be killing each other all the time? <laughs> you know, um, and so that approach made him extremely valuable, even though he's in Dannemora prison when they decide that they want to approach him and see if he'll help. Um, they know that his word would go a long way everywhere in the city. Um, so, so they decide to try and bring him on board. Um, but Danamore again was just, just too far. So they, they have to kind of go through some cloak and dagger methods, you know, in order to get him transferred to a prison that's closer. And, you know, even Luciano doesn't know why he's being transferred. Um, and but, then but I bet he was happy because every gangster I ever knew here in Kansas city, they get, <laughs> they put him in a penitentiary way down in Texas or up in the North central part of the United States. There was some that they went to, they want to be at the farm at Leavenworth, which is only about 40 miles North of Kansas. City. They want to get to Leavenworth. They even tried I to drive a warden to get one of them up to Leavenworth because <laughs> you know, yeah. then it's only like an hour's drive or a little less for family and associates and everything to meet them. But boy, when it's, long ways off it, it's tough so he really wanted to get back to new york anyhow yeah i mean he, he must have been like well you know his, his nickname is lucky i mean he must have yeah. been like, well, what, what stroke of luck has <laughs> happened that i'm that i'm going here you know and i mean they called danamora little siberia you know because yeah, oh, i can imagine <laughs> you know the walls would freeze in the winter and yeah. um there was actually a, a memoir written by a prisoner who uh, did time with luciano and danamora um, and I found his memoir and um, actually able to learn a lot about his daily routine mm -hmm. in prison. You know, not not much is known about his his life in prison there. Yeah. Um, you know, and we I, I get into the nitty gritty, you know, like how he goes to the bathroom and, you know, what <laughs> really? is, you know, the terrible, the terrible activities he has to do. But once he gets to Great Meadow, you know. Yeah. Just just something like having decent toilet paper was just a huge, <laughs> you know, was a big deal for him. So. Now, where did Tom Dewey figure in all this? You know, he hated Luciano and, and Luciano actually saved his life by having that Schultz killed. But he hated Luciano. And now did, did they like just operate outside of, of somebody like Thomas Dewey? Yeah, you know, when I first um, started doing research for this book, I thought that um, I knew that there was cooperation between the Navy and the district attorney's office. And I had just assumed that that would be Thomas Dewey. But I was I was wrong. He actually uh, left his position as district attorney uh, right before Operation Underworld wow. began. OK, um, but, uh, you know, as your your listeners will probably know, but might as well just you know go into it that, you know, Thomas Dewey made his career as a prosecutor by successfully uh, prosecuting Lucky Luciano. Uh, 62 counts of pandering, I believe it was, um, that got him a 30 to 50 year prison sentence. And so Luciano, I think is only um, about six years into that sentence, you know, when Operation Underworld begins. So he's been, you know, in Dannemora for six years. He's got a long way to go. Um, and then uh, that sent Dewey to the governor's office and, and to run right. for president in 1948, the famous picture of our, our Missourian, uh, <laughs> Harry Truman with holding up a picture saying Dewey right. wins. And, and he yeah. Gets. Dewey defeats Truman. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting how, uh, you know, cause obviously I read Luciano's memoir and it's just incredible how much Luciano thought about Dewey. It just, I mean, he just thought about him all the time. And I guess, you know, when you're in prison and you've 
Dan Moore is one of those prisons that's designed to make you reflect. You're alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 16 hours, you know, being alone in your cell a day, you're going to, you're going to do a lot of thinking, you know, unfortunately. Um, and so, you know, when Operation Wonderworld gets going uh, within, you know, within a few months, I think it was at the, be- yeah, the beginning of 1943, Dewey, yeah, uh, ascends to the governor's, governor's office in New York. And now all of a sudden he's in a position where he could potentially pardon Luciano. Um, and much has been made about a bribe that Luciano offered Dewey uh, in order to get himself out of prison. Um, and those rumors persisted for years and years and years, well after Operation Underworld. Um, and they just, they haunted uh, Dewey, unfortunately. And, you know, in the book, I, I talk about it. And, you know, I certainly believe that uh, that Luciano, and you know his faction offered a bribe to Dewey, but I don't believe for a second that he accepted it. <laughs> you know, he, he was a pretty straight laced guy, um, and uh, you know even Luciano just he thinks that Dewey's you know playing along with him. He thinks he plays by the same set of rules. You know, like you said, he saved his life actually twice. Um, once to Dutch Schultz, and then Anastasia wanted to have a, have a go at him. I didn't you know, know about Luciano that one. Um, and so, yeah, you know, Luciano feels that Dewey owes him and Dewey's just not that kind of, not that kind of person, you know, there's no, you don't owe people favors. You don't, you know, you don't get, you don't get, um, rewarded for not doing something terrible, you know, <laughs> and, and, and you don't become president of the United States with, uh, pardon and lucky Luciano in your background either. <laughs> No, no, yeah, yeah. A politician no. wants to have in their background. <laughs> no, not at all. What and, the uh, reason is on the surface, you know, it, it just don't go any farther. So, so then, how did how did Lucky crack the whip? How, who, did he have somebody that he sent out to talk directly to people? Because they're still not gonna. He's not gonna call him into penitentiary and you know be streaming in while he says, you know, you do you do take care of this. Uh, Commander Heffernan, or uh, and so he had to send word out somehow. Out that word, he did. yeah. So um, one of the reasons why they moved him to a uh, Great Meadow Prison is the name. Uh, you probably haven't heard of it because it's far less notorious. It's not Sing Sing or yeah, or, Tenham, or, <laughs> or Rikers Island. You know, yeah. uh, probably be the, the one you'd want to go to if you had to go to. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway. Um, one of the re- the reason why they moved him is to make him more accessible to the people who you know would be able to um, you know spread the word. And who are those people? They're his top bosses, <laughs> you know, his lieutenants. So, yeah. you know, you're thinking about like a, a, a you know a king type of the underworld getting <laughs> access to all of his you know to his royal court, so to yeah, speak. All his captors uh, <laughs> is just unprecedented. Um, and so, like as I mentioned earlier, you know his best friend um, uh, is Meyer Lansky, uh, you know, uh, famously known as the the mob's accountant. Yeah. Um, you know, very good with numbers and uh, very very well respected. Um, and they need him, you know, to to talk to Luciano because they're not sure he's going to go along with it. And if anybody could convince him of it, you know, it's Lansky. And uh, you know, I should I should emphasize that there were no deals given to these criminals for their cooperation in 
Operation Underworld, you know, like it's it's your patriotic duty. You don't get time off your prison sentences, you know, uh, because you're helping. And so when, you know, they finally convinced Luciano to help, you know, they bring in Sox Lanza, you know, from, from Fulton Fish Market um, and then some other names you've probably heard of, like Frank Costello yeah. and Willie Moretti. Um and, you know, Lansky, you know, had connections with the Irish gangs. He had connection with the longshoremen. He had connection with the other Italian families. So he could go to the leader. You know, I, I was like, well, how do they keep this a secret? You know, if they're like going to every longshoreman, you know, on the waterfront and saying, hey, Luciano's behind this, you know, like he wants you to help. And it wasn't like that. You know, they, they went to leadership, you know, and, and like uh, Joe Ryan and Jerry Sullivan, you know, where, um, you know, the International Longshoremen Association president and chief organizer and uh, uh, major criminals. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, you know, you, you go to them and then all of a sudden you can have access to anywhere in the piers or longshoremen anywhere in the piers. So you have Navy agents, you know, going into these situations where they're getting hired, you know, uh, during the shape-ups uh, and getting selected and working side by side with these longshoremen, you know, to, to figure out what that's what if there's any 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 uh, any activity going yeah. on. So. Joe Adonis. Now, didn't didn't he? Wasn't he a, a particularly close to Luciano? Yeah. Yes, he was. Um, and uh, I don't I don't have a record of him uh, visiting Luciano in prison, which is kind of surprising because Luciano had what what was called his board of directors. Yeah. Um, and you know, four, four names that I'm going to name here are really you know, jump out at you. Uh, Meyer Lansky, Frank Costello, of course, Joe Adonis, and then Bugsy Siegel uh, as well, who actually does end up visiting Luciano later on um, because of Operation Underworld as well. But yeah, Joe Adonis, you know, not not someone, not a boss that I've heard much about prior to this story. And I was surprised that I hadn't because he's right there, you know, in, in their rise. And um, you know, he was actually part of the Brooklyn family and uh, was a capo uh, in the Manjano um, uh, family. And uh, he was kind of like equal in rank to um, uh, Anastasia. And uh, one of the things that's kind of unknown about Operation Underworld is that Anastasia played no part in Operation oh, Underworld. Really? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So um, prior to it, you know, there's this uh, murder investigation that's going on. And he was actually on the run for two years. Nobody had seen him uh, since like 1939. Um, but then lo and behold, uh, you know, one of the first conversations that Luciano has uh, is, is about getting rid of this, uh, this witness, you know, who was a former member of murder Inc. Um, oh, and, yeah. uh, and so once they take him out, you know, Anastasia comes out from hiding and he ends up joining the army. Um, you know, kind of a, a tactic of, of old to hide out in the military. <laughs> you, and, know. And, you know, during World War II, I mean, mob guys joined the army and fought. I, I know uh, uh, the kind of the famous, he, he was more of like a mob associate, Alan Dorfman up in Chicago was big time teamster and fell with the, uh, uh, the Las Vegas skimming uh, operation in the seventies. Mm. He got, I think he won the silver star. And and I talked to an old mob guy here, and he said, "Oh yeah, I joined the military and served overseas." And and he said, "I started I started on troop ships coming home, and I opened a canteen and made so much money 
that I just stayed in and started going back and forth on troop ships, running a canteen yeah. that, that he and, and some officer officer that he would pay off, of course, would, would allow him to do this. And, and he'd mm-hmm. sell things to soldiers. So movie stars, everybody, you know, was involved in the war effort. Yeah, and it's it's funny. It just goes to show, you know, again, you think of the mafia and they're like enemies of the state. Well, <laughs> perhaps they understand that they need this state to survive in order to be able to operate, <laughs> yes. you know, within it. You know, yes. I don't think they, they would not have much success in fascist Europe. <laughs> no, they found that out under Mussolini. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. But um, no, uh, you know, what, one one of the things to, to get back to Adonis, um, you know, what, one of the things I go into in the book is because I was really fascinated and wanted to know what kind of business dealings the, the mafia was into during World War II. Um, and of course, there's the union exploitation, you know, which we, which we kind of got into. And then the other big one is gambling, you know, and uh, it, it appears that um, uh, Joe Adonis and Luciano were... Um, uh, jointly um, invested. I can't remember which which um, which establishment it was, and they were kind of moving money around because they were getting ready. They had developed so many uh, gambling dens and actually built them into yeah. the first versions of the casinos that we know today. You know, enter- lavish entertainment. You know, um, you know, beautiful game rooms. Um, you know, over the top restaurants. You know, all you know in in a hotel. You know, all places you can stay. And this kind of used to happen a lot in New Jersey and upstate New York, um, you know, and Adonis uh, was was heavily connected with the Jersey uh, crews over there. And that's actually where Willie Moretti, um, who was um, Frank Costello's underboss, you know, that was kind of his his headquarters. Um, but so anyway, slot they, machines too. They were, they were yeah, yeah, slot, slot, slot. That was Frank Costello's deal with slot machines. Yes, yeah, certainly. So the one armed bandits. Yeah. Um, so in, in New York, that got busted up in the mid 30s by LaGuardia. And then Costello moved his operation down to um, Louisiana, I believe it was. So, right. You know, it's kind of this, this interesting point uh, in the mafia's history where they're like, you know, the, the prosecution of Luciano certainly rattled everybody. Um, and you can see them getting their business holdings out of New York City, <laughs> you know. Uh, and so, you know, Lansky and Adonis are, you know, pushing into Florida, um, you know, uh, racetracks, casinos. And then, of course, they're also pushing into beginning to start to push into Havana, uh, which, you know, you probably probably know some of those efforts. And for the people who love The Godfather, you know, that's that's what Godfather 2, you know, w- was based on those efforts. Um, so, you yeah, Adonis is just kind of kind of moving money, and then he's also Luciano's kind of uh, right hand man in the Mangiano family. So he he helps um, uh, deliver some uh, some informants uh, when Operation Underworld starts gathering Sicilians because you know uh, uh, the fight ends up you know going from the home front uh, to Europe. <laughs> and I wondered about that when they land. They were going to do some landings on Sicily as they go up the soft underbelly of Europe, as they used to call it, and go all mm-hmm. the way up the spine of Italy. So right. to get intelligence and, and maybe even have agents on the ground over in Sicily, you know, your Sicilians in New York going to have family over there and yeah. they're going to know the lay of the land. So I, they then moved from the waterfronts to Sicily is, is my understanding. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like as a storyteller, you, you couldn't, you couldn't hope for a better connection. Right. Because, right. You, know, you know, here, here you are talking about the home front and, 
you know, I don't want to spoil the story, but we, we got the home front buttoned up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, and, everybody and, knows that. Yeah, right. And, and you know, and then we, and then we took the fight to the enemy, and it's just this interesting thing that, um, you know, uh, the United States and New York City in particular, you know, had more Italians than any other place on the planet except for Italy. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a lot of those, a lot of those people had fled Mussolini's regime, so they were not loyal, you know, to the government there. Um, and when they realized that Operation Underworld, you know, it, it was realized that these guys were in a perfect position to develop these these networks of informants. And so the mafia went from, you know, I mean, of course, they were still keeping, you know, the watchdogs and the docks, you know, keeping everything in order. But then they started, you know, nabbing all these uh, longshoremen, you know, who were known to be Sicilians. They even find like a town mayor. You know, and they they're bringing them into the map rooms, you know, of intelligence officers, and they're they're drawing maps of Sicily. They're they're told to bring postcards with them, you know, if they have any pictures of the coastline, you know, um, just any way they can glean intelligence, you know, of, of what it looks like. Because unfortunately, all the maps and charts and data that we had collected from World War One was lost. You know, we we didn't we didn't keep it. You know, so we had nothing. We didn't even have up-to-date maps. They were getting their maps from Rand McNally. <laughs> you know, the, the Navy was getting their maps from Rand yeah. McNally. Uh, um, and so um, that intelligence, you know, certainly wasn't valuable to war planners. It's like, you know, officers are coming every day, you know, into the map room and, you know, learning more and more. And then it also becomes evident to the military planners, you know, that if, if the Italian people are not necessarily loyal to Mussolini, perhaps we can get them to turn on Mussolini. Um, but they're like, okay, if we're going to do that, we need somebody in our army who can actually contact these people, you know, yeah. let them know that we're not trying to fight you, you know? And so, um, so there are officers who are plucked right out of operation underworld, um, right out of commander Happenden's command. And um, they're given commando training and, North Africa and they develop contacts and they're they land in the first waves of the Sicily invasion and Gela and Lakata. Um and uh, I won't I won't go into the how that all ends up, but they end up making mafia contacts, yeah. you know, from from sources in New York City, you know, they end up helping them out in Sicily. And um, there's a mission that they take on that has success because of that arrangement. Cool. All right. Cool. All right, Matthew. The, yeah, we don't want to give away everything. We want you right. to buy the book, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Believe exactly. me, I, I recommend you get this book. I'll have links in my show notes down below. And and uh, so I, I really appreciate you coming on here, Matthew. This is it's a heck of a book, and I'm going to get back to, to working on it. I glossed over it and took some notes because I just got them. Then I went ahead and, and interviewed you and getting this ready to go. But it's it's just a fascinating story, and and oh by the way, those those places you talked about, I did a story on that called Carpet Joints. Mm. Really, throughout the United States, they did like country clubs would be just outside city limits of, of major cities, and right. they would develop the country club uh, clubhouse into a carpet joint and have really nice dining and and entertainment and and uh, a gambling room in the back. So. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. yeah. It was an interesting time in the, in, in our history. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. For, uh, sure, for and, sure. And when the mafia was and the government and the criminal justice system and society, uh, all across society were more intertwined with each other. And, and it, it wasn't, I don't know. It was just a different time. 
it's not like that anymore, of course, but uh, certainly it's yeah. a, such a fascinating time. Indeed. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Right, Matthew, I really appreciate you coming on here and, and tell my guys this story. And, and I know they're going to be all over this book. So uh, I know I'm going to be here. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot for coming on, Matthew. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Gary. Thank you. Guys, now don't forget I ride motorcycles, so watch out for motorcycles when you're out there on the streets. And if you have a problem with PTSD, if you've been in the military or you know somebody with a PS PTSD problem and they've been in the military, especially, you know, go to the VA website and get that hotline. There's help available. Thanks a lot, guys. <laughs>